Welcome to Change Hackers, providing daily insight and inspiration for people changing their world. I'm your host, Tony Cook, and I invite you to join me today in conversation with someone on the front line of driving change and transformation. My guest today is Tim Jackson. Tim is Professor of Sustainable Development at the University of Surrey, where he's Director of the Centre for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity. He spent over 30 years involved in multidisciplinary research and policy development on sustainability, in particular his work as Economics Commissioner on the UK Sustainable Development Commission. Tim is probably best known around the world as the author of Prosperity Without Growth, a polemic treatise on our addiction to economic growth that he first published in 2009 in the immediate aftermath of the global financial crisis, and that he's recently republished as a substantially revised and updated second edition. What's not so well known is Tim's parallel career as an award-winning playwright with numerous radio writing credits for the BBC. I spoke to Tim online from his office at the University of Surrey in the UK. So Tim, welcome to Change Hackers. Thanks, Tony. Good to be here. So I first came across you by name and reputation, I guess, back in 2002, when I got involved chairing regional delivery for UK government's sustainable food and agriculture strategy, working with Sir Don Curry, David Miliband. I think at the time you were a sustainable development commissioner. 2002 was actually before I was on the Sustainable Development Commission, just before I joined the SDC in 2004, I think it was. But I had been doing some work with government before that, I think, probably around sort of behaviour change type stuff. Right. And then, of course, your book, Prosperity Without Growth, came out in 2009. And I and a former colleague and dear friend of mine, Thomas Jelly, who's actually a, a former student of yours at oh, Surrey. Yeah, I remember Thomas yeah, very well. We together tried to introduce the arguments in the book to the senior leadership of Sodexo, um, where we were both working at the time, without, I have to admit, much success. We actually f- we found it incredibly difficult to translate the arguments into language that made a, a compelling case for change to conventionally minded CEOs and, and CFOs the time and that was probably as much more more the limitations of our own ability to articulate and sort of reframe arguments into language that they understood but where we got really stuck was around the so what questions you know so what do we actually do about it you know how do we do this transition away from where we're currently stuck and complicit to where we see that we ought to be the difficult bit was well how do we get from a to b mm. so uh, i'd like to come back to this issue around transition and where do we get stuck both as, as businesses um, as governments and, and as society in making that transition mm. but before we do that what i'd really like to do is sort of dig into why you've chosen to republish prosperity without growth again this last year with some major revisions you know what's behind this decision what's changed in the last eight years that you've wanted to capture in this new version of the book yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I um, I thought it would be easy. I think that's why I decided to do it. Um, <laughs> and uh, th- there was there was a clear sense that you know the numbers had changed, and so it might be a good idea to update some of those and maybe you know uh, look at the graphs and and update those. And that's what I thought I would be doing. And it was kind of suggested by the publisher by other people that you know it'd be nice to have an updated edition of that and I kind of immediately said yes and um but as soon as I started doing it actually when I sat down to you know start writing and thinking about what I was going to do and how it was going to change I realized 
a couple of things. Firstly, that the world had changed. Um, when Prosperity Without Grace was first published, we were going through the financial crisis still. It was just the early days of that. Everybody thought we could kickstart growth. Everything would be all right. And that was, you know, it was even before kind of austerity and all the damage that that, that caused in social terms before the political instability, before the recognition actually that it wasn't just a kind of business cycle that we saw in 2008. It was, it was actually a, the, the model reaching a kind of turning point um, mm. and, and that actually the, the, the growth-based economy that everybody wants wasn't necessarily going to come back in the same form that we thought it would. So there was, there was that, you know, the world had changed. And, and yet I was still being asked to go out and talk about prosperity without growth, even though it was kind of eight years ago. And I kind of thought I want to bring this work, which has occupied me, you know, almost not entirely exclusively, but very heavily over almost a decade and, and just have a little point of reflection and say, you know, where has it changed? What should be said now? Does the argument still stand? That was my initial motivation, I suppose, was to, you know, as soon as I started thinking about it, was to do a bit more of a, in the way of a radical, not radical, but substantial revision. And then, uh, of course, when you start revising a book, you should probably sit down and read the first one. You sort of have to, really. And, Remind yourself what you said. Yeah, it's useful. Say. Um, and there, there was a kind of surprise in store for me because I hadn't actually sat down and read it from beginning to end since I wrote it. And I'd gone out and, and I kind of, uh, you know, I'd rehearsed the arguments and I'd evolved the arguments and they had changed a little bit. And I'd begun to get a sort of narrative, a, a synthetic narrative going from, you know, the need for change to what you put in place to how you deliver that in policy. And, and I found that it wasn't actually... Um, as clearly expressed in the book as I was now able to do, having had some time to sort of rehearse it and go out and talk to lots of different people and, and do it in practice in some cases and, and write about it further. So I kind of thought, you know, at that point, I, I started thinking, well, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to change some figures. And then I realised the world had changed. And then I realised the book didn't quite say what I wanted to say anymore because I had also changed. And so... Uh, the, it became a sort of labour of love, really, um, because the second edition is never going to be the same as the first edition in terms of maybe bam, splash, impact. Um, but I wanted it out there. I kind of wanted a better book out there, a better narrative out there, a clearer statement that, and a clearer vision of, of a different kind of economy pushing through that. And and I I became absorbed in that as a task in itself, in a way. And I kind of, um, although... As I say, you can't expect a second edition really to make the same impact. I'm kind of pleased that it stands as the latest statement of, of that work. Did you have a sense in mind of a, of a different kind of audience this time around? Uh, there, was a, there was a slightly different sense. I mean, when I sat down and write, wrote the, the, the report for the SDC, it was a report to government. That's what we were writing. And so, um, you know, you, it was odd. It was an odd report to government because I... I quite deliberately sat down and said, the task here is about communication. It's about putting things, quite complex things, in a simple enough way that they can be accessible. And I had at that point had a little bit of you know, contact with the policy environment. I've been working in it for five or six years. I knew 
that ministers only ever saw half a page briefing that was put together by one of their special advisors and that special advisors also probably based what they did on you know things of less than five or ten thousand words and and that here was a kind of thesis that we were trying to communicate up that chain of of advice and influence and policy and governance to the UK government, the SDC reported to the Prime Minister. And, and so I wanted, you know, I, I was very aware that I wanted to write something that was accessible. Again, when I came back to, to, to reading it, I was surprised in a way that it had become so widely distributed because I think there were parts of it that weren't so accessible. And I remember, I remember giving it to my my mother at one point and she sort of got to one of the graphs on about page 15 or 20 or something and said oh I don't like graphs dear and that you know that was and that was it <laughs> and I kind of it's always a great leveler yeah, <laughs> was, if you can't explain something to your mother or your grandmother in a way that they understand it, yeah but uh, I mean what's interesting you, know, you is, need to try harder yeah that's right that's right but what's interesting is that you know I can explain things to, to my mother as long as I don't you know tell the story with with graphics and numbers too much right. and it was a very difficult story to tell without some of that um but in this in the second edition i very specifically did try to make it a bit more narrative and i say also to untangle the narrative because when i in the first edition i realized as i went back to it that i had not followed a dramatic narrative properly i'd kind of wound it up on itself i'd gone you know here's a problem here's a potential way out of it here's another problem um, but what if this and and actually even the the writing itself I found in the first edition didn't have a sense of its own journey in a way it it, it was a series of chapters dealing with aspects of the problem and they were each coherent and self-contained but they didn't always progress that idea that change is possible and how it's possible and I wanted to do that more clearly in the in the second edition. Do you think it's an opportunity too to I mean a introduce the book to a, a fresh audience who maybe hadn't discovered yeah. the book first time round um, but also in terms of people who perhaps had rejected the book the first time round you know who in terms of their own journey their mind their mindset their world view wasn't quite ready to listen to to what you were saying uh, uh, and, and now yeah. you, you, you know their ears are more open now. Their yeah, minds more open. and partly they're open because of the ground that the first edition created by its sort of ripple effect, you know, out out there. I mean, that's been one of the weirdest things in a way that, you know, I teach in the university. So I have new cohorts of uh, students coming through every year. And then there was this one point at which I suddenly began to realise that they were rehearsing without knowing where they'd come from, arguments that were, you know, anti-growth. Uh, or sceptical of growth without ever, you know, citing prosperity without growth or thinking, you know, where that idea came from or recognising that there was a time not that long ago when you couldn't even ask these questions. So, uh, and that's that's been that's been really interesting in a way because, I, you know, my job as a professor actually had to change in a way because I can't now teach a generation of committed kids who have something which was a, has become a sort of meme in society I can't go and then rehearse that for them as though that's learning because it's not so and that, that was also another thing I, I guess I wanted to do with the second edition was to take you know to, to unpack the 
the consequent questions a little bit further. So if we believe these arguments and this is the society we want to create, what can we say about the economy and the structure of that society and the institutions that govern it? And, and that's a task that is, I think, really, it's an ongoing task. It's not solved by anything that's been written so far. It's a, it's a sort of journey of discovery that we're definitely on now, but uh, you know, there's a lot of work still to be done. Let's move on to talk about why this is your problem to address. Some, something I heard that, that really intrigued me was I got this impression that you were you know, a, a sort of, if, you, if, if I can describe it this way, a reluctant economist um, in, the, in the sense that you know, I understand you, you came back to economics um, because you recognised it was at the heart of the problem, sort of creating barriers to progress. And, and therefore it was important to understand it better, crack its code, better articulate its failings and so on from within the economics discipline. But it wasn't through choice. It was like a compulsion to go back to it because of, um, it was standing in the way of things you really cared about. Yeah, yeah. I sometimes talk about myself as a kind of accidental professor because that that, that isn't, you know, kind of what I had in mind really. And, and I've never been a particularly good academic in the strict sense of the word I've always been motivated by I, I guess that sort of idea of a vision of change because because my sense of the society that I grew up in and that we were becoming was sort of uncomfortable to me so I think that you know I, I was that um, that discomfort came to a head in I guess it was probably April 1986 when Chernobyl reactor number four melted down and there was this sort of sense of of um almost menace <laughs> i remember going i remember um walking through the suffolk countryside and it was this beautiful day just after chernobyl had broken down and the and the uh, sky was blue and the sun was shining and the birds were singing and nature was wonderful and yet, on the same day, we had these announcements that we shouldn't be outside too much and that, um, you know, sheep in Wales were being irradiated and were no longer suitable for market. And I remember having this sense, actually, of the kind of the simultaneous benefit that technology can bring us in society and also the menace it can have when it's, it's, it's not properly supervised, when, it's, when it breaks certain kinds of principles and... And when it's when it's driven, I think by by motivations that aren't really human. I, I think my, in a way, my kind of primary my primary sort of desire from since when I was a kid was to sort of look at this rather technocratic, technologically driven consumerist world around me, and and find a better kind of you know a better vision for it a better compass for it because it seemed to me that the sort of humanity that underlies us and the creativity in our souls and the beauty of, of our poetry and our relation potential relationship to nature were getting lost in a kind of industrial soup if you like a, 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 a well a soup of industrialism and consumerism all rolled into this idea that life is about having more and more stuff and and i i just I just didn't go along with that, even when I was a kid. And then when this this meltdown thing happened, and I had been, I was living in London at that time, trying to write. Well, actually, writing plays. I shouldn't dismiss the fact that I was writing them, uh, but they were they were not really paying me a living at that point. And so to make up, you know, what I needed to pay the rent, I was working on tables and doing 
I don't know, market research, anything I could get my hands on just to get a bit of money. And then this happened and I kind of thought, well, actually, instead of doing that waiting on table stuff and trying to explain to people why I was doing that when I had a degree in you know, mathematics and philosophy and whatever, um, that I would offer my services free at first to Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace and just say, look, is there anything I can do? Because I want to, I want to be involved in this. And then from that moment, almost literally from that moment, I remember going into those offices in Greenpeace, it was in London in 86, um, for almost from that moment, the demand for me to be doing that other thing, that working in this territory just didn't stop. And, um, and hasn't stopped to this day. It was almost like the world was saying, hey, you want to be a playwright, Tim, but we want you to do this. Um, and every now and then I kind of still look back at that choice and, you know, I mean, I wouldn't change that choice. I still, I still feel a little bit sort of as though, you know, I've been led along that path by, by the forces of the world rather than my own, you know, necessarily my own, you know, desire for this is what I want my creativity to be expressed as. But it's been a fascinating, it's been, you know, it's been absolutely fascinating as a, as a journey. And, and reluctant or accidental or not, you know, I soon realised that economics was at the core of the challenge that I was trying to address. And so I just then, you know, I had to go back and, and think about economics and think about the economic structure and, and work it through in practice in various ways. And in a way, I was kind of ideally situated to do that because partly because I was accidental and I was reluctant. You know, if I'd been absolutely schooled in economics and made it my profession and gone out there and done that, it's actually very hard to question at that point. But it's easier right. for a kind of outsider to question. I mean, I see parallels in the um, the way Kate Rayworth describes her return to economics in terms of, you know, it wasn't something she chose to do. She felt compelled to because it was the only way of understanding how to fix the malaise. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, when I was at economics at school, I ran away from it, really. I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't understand the relationship between all these concepts and words, consumption and production and productivity. And, 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 you know, we had to rote learn these things and what they meant and without ever really questioning whether they were important or what the relationship to human beings was. And it was that particularly that I felt was missing out of the economics that I had early on. So, so in returning to studying economics, to what extent do you have to bite your tongue? Because I imagine at the time there wouldn't have been that many places to go where you could get an alternative view on economics and an alternative sort of schooling. You're hitting on a slightly sensitive issue here, Tony, because I don't have an economics qualification. I have, I have degrees in maths, in um, philosophy and in the foundations of physics. And I learned my economics on the run as it were so the first the first job that when i went to walk through those store, those stores in in london to greenpeace the first job they basically gave me was looking at the economics of renewable energy and i was like i mean i reached back to my what i knew from you know o level economics um about the concepts and cost benefit analysis broadly and i I reached for the textbooks for the techniques to, to, to be able to do those things and you know, discounted cash flow, net present value, all those kinds of things. And I, I kind of taught myself along, along the way how to do that sort of analysis. 
And then the micro stuff, you know, what's the decision making of ordinary people about whether they install renewable energy or nuclear power or fossil fuel, that's a micro level decision, an economic decision, microeconomics. That took me only so far because I began to realize that there were these, you know, bigger, stronger driving forces at the macro level around the GDP and growth uh, that constantly seemed to trump any sort of decision around sustainability or around even around human humanity really around around you know what it means to have a good society and how to make that work was constantly being undermined and trumped by this 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 growth drive this this vision of an economics that's driven solely by expansion and and then and so you know having learned the micro stuff i then had to learn the macro stuff and, and think through why that was happening and and the mechanisms through which it was happening and so i had to i had to not you know it wasn't just accidental i had to kind of invent myself as an economist in a way and through the 90s i was working on quite a lot on these adjusted mechanisms of of gdp so so deconstructing the gdp understanding it as a mechanism changing it to see what would happen if we began to count inequality or if we began to count the costs of climate change and working through methodologies that would allow us to measure slightly differently. So that was a very good place for me to learn all the things that I didn't know and needed to know about the macroeconomy and and how it worked. And through that, you know, I began to be seen sometimes by some people as an economist in the outside world to the point at which I was I was appointed as the economics commissioner on on the sustainable development commission at that point i had you know it might have been accidental but it but i had a sense of of being able to stand up in the world as some somebody that someone would sometimes call an economist although i still i still do encounter interestingly you know the challenge um what happens when you take these arguments to proper economics? Well, I was just going to ask, so, though, you know, the, the, you know, the minute you sort of go public and are appointed as an economics commissioner, um, which sort of validates your standing, but to the, you know, the professional e- economist community who, you know, classically trained in economics, yeah, you know, that you, you must have met with a great deal of resistance initially. As, as economics commissioner, no, um, I, th- I, I didn't. Um, but it is one of the challenges that people have, I mean, the, the, issue, the issue is, you know, if you challenge someone that they're not an economist, you then have to prove it. And if you try and prove it by showing that they don't understand the arguments, then, you know, if you do understand the arguments, they've got egg on their face. So, and I do understand the arguments. I, you know, I understand, I would say that I understand those arguments better than some economists because I know not just the pros for uh, you know the expansion of the economy but also the cons I know why it's why um, you know macroeconomic stability is a good thing and I also know where it comes unstuck and why it comes unstuck and that you can find it in different places because I've I've worked my way around that territory so if I have you know if these economists proper economists come out and say to me you're not a proper economist I, I say well show me where and actually that's what what tends to happen more is that is that I when I come across people who I would think of in some sense as improper economists because they don't question enough mm. what the, the the response that really gets to me is the one where they kind of retreat into you know sort of agreed maxims and then refuse to argue 
you know if someone wants to argue with me a case I know so many of those arguments now it's like you know it's like uh, I'm, I'm I'm walking into a a wrestling ring with people who know that it's all about orchestrated moves and I'm not worried about the outcome because that's probably fixed in advance anyway um and 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 so the argumentation doesn't bother me at all mm. what bothers me is is when people kind of retreat from um actually engaging with the arguments and simply and, and and sometimes I think that it, sometimes I think that's about safety that they you know that nobody likes their worldview to be challenged and you have to respect that in some extent and sometimes I think it's about uh, closing in around the territory that is protecting the interests of a minority of people mm -hmm. and not actually addressing the needs of of the majority and and that's that's the point where I feel less sympathetic to it but i do have some sympathies with with um you know a, a, an economics discipline that's under attack everywhere and that doesn't really like it and and actually at heart a good economist and there's lots of them through the ages have been motivated by genuine concerns about human well-being but it's it's, it's um uh, dogmatic lazy approaches um to economics yeah. that they're, they're unhelpful exactly. aren't they yeah. yeah. So, I mean, looking back, would you say that in, with hindsight, your route into economics was probably a, a better, more self-curated um, approach to have taken rather than, you know, taking a classical training route, infected or conditioned into thinking a certain way? You found stuff that resonated for you uh, as much as sort of interrogating the classical yeah. stuff. I mean, I was always, as a kid, I was always fairly challenging of what someone told me was knowledge so I think there's probably a certain sort of you know inherent uh, propensity to question which which came al along with that but I do think you know in some ways it's really bizarre that you know it's almost like a philosophy of life in a way that there, there may be some parts of you know your own personality that prepare you for what's coming ahead even while you don't even mm. know that mm. they're doing it you know uh, you know i could have made a decision to study economics at a, a a very early stage because i sort of picked up that it was talking about some of the things that were challenging in the world but i was instinctively so um put off by what i found there that i i went in a different path and accidentally, those things in the different path turned out to be exactly the ones that I would need later on to go back to economics and so mathematics. You know, the formal analytical part of it was easy to me. And philosophy, the thinking part of it, is exactly what had gone missing out of economics to some extent since the sort of neoclassical turn. When you first started, you know, making your way into economics, did, did I mean, did you feel isolated at, at that time? Was it easy to find kindred spirits and you know, people who had a, a similar worldview to you, who who were questioning in the same sorts of ways? You know, and and over time, has that become easier? And is, is the role of that tribe, if you like, you know, that pluralist economics movement, you know, is, is that an important aspect of feeding your own confidence? Yeah, I remember. I remember points at which. But this is probably always true that, you know, when you're early in your profession, there's a sense of, you know, it's harder to have that confidence in your ability, in your position. I think that's that's 
inevitable in a way and in fact in some ways i would say the you know, the gaining of confidence in your ability and your position is one of the most dangerous things that can happen to you um, because it then stops you kind of questioning uh, what's going on, which I think you should at every turn, really. Um, but the the reality is I didn't feel that isolated. And I didn't feel that isolated because I always chose to work with the people who um, who had that same drive to question, to change, to to be change agents in the world, to to you know convene a different vision for a better society, and be prepared sometimes mm. to sacrifice even in order to achieve that. We knew that we were kind of sacrificing the good jobs with the high pay and the fantastic consultancy fees, um, but actually we were happier in that little grubby office near king's cross with its very poor heating system and you know it's battered down infrastructure because we felt that we were doing something challenging creative and necessary mm. and and actually there was a sense of pride in that so so we and we definitely had sort of these kind of david and goliath moments where we'd kind of go out and get trashed by or or occasionally score a strike against you know multinationals or big corporations or government um, pressure and in some ways that was a clearer territory when we were doing that it was clearer who you know who, who, who in our view who the good guys were and, and who we were fighting um, sometimes than it is now but I don't think I I don't think I I didn't feel isolated through that process because you don't actually. It's one of the things that draws you together is yeah. is being is fighting for something which you see as a common cause. And I had enormous support, I would say, all the way through from some, you know, really fantastic people and characters that very definitely made me feel much more comfortable. And I think than I would have been, you know, if I was working in a in a more secure capacity with a clear label that i was a proper economist mm. Mm. Do, you, do you think you've always had that sense of a need for higher purpose and you know what you might call a legacy mindset yeah i do i mean that's that's probably the earliest thing that you know it came for me out of i don't know really i mean lots lots of things but you know things things very early on in my life that sort of questioned the conventional view of what it means to have a good life you know some of that uncomfortable stuff actually that this pretty picture that we paint both of you know society and the, and the endless cornucopia of material wealth that everyone can aspire to but also of ourselves as somehow you know eternal and eternally important beings um who have a, a a, a kind of god-given right to happiness and long life and actually that's it's it's an illusion really it's an illusion that we've painted around ourselves because we're absolutely terrified of of, of a deeper reality which is much more about impermanence much more about suffering much more about you know the fragility of human qualities mm. that really matter and and I, I, I think I was exposed to, to just, you know, a few things early on that made me very aware of that. Um, and, and, and that was uncomfortable. I think that was a really uncomfortable place to be because you, you're kind of then you're, 
you're at odds with your peer group at school or wherever, um, you still find kindred spirits to bond with and create your your friendship. But but if you're in a culture where actually, you know, which is pushing towards this vision that you see and see through as being kind of false and it's glittering, but it doesn't matter, then you do begin to think of yourself a little bit as kind of, you know, I'm, I'm a bit out of the world here. I don't quite know my place in it. But then every teenager everywhere really, you know, goes through that sense of finding their place in the world, the constraints of peer pressure, the, you know, the competitiveness of, of status and hierarchy. And, and, and I would say one of the things that's changed dramatically since I was a kid and looking at my kids today is that that actually is a much more fluid, not necessarily forgiving, but it's a, it's, it's an easier place to be in some sense because this, revisioning of who we are and of society and of progress it has a greater currency now than it did when i was a kid definitely as a parent of kids who are sort of just approaching adulthood i, I recognize that I, I see a certain sort of freedom um of thinking in in, yeah, in where they're good. going next yeah. in part because of the way we've parented them but i think it's also a generational thing uh, but also I think it's, it's possibly down to an acceptance that the kind of things a generation ago we might have sought, you know, kind of like the, the, the shackles and the commitments and the mortgage and, the, you know, all things that you sort of tie yourself into, which put you inevitably into a hamster wheel, which then makes you complicit in the, kind of the current system. Yeah. You know, they're, they're almost free of all that because some of it's so out of reach um, that they've accepted the um, no, nomadic nature of, you know, the life ahead of them. Yeah, maybe they seem very sort of at ease with that. They're not anxious about I think, it. Yeah, I, I kind, of, I sort of hope so that they're not anxious because um, I, I do see some anxiety. I think, and I think in a way, maybe it's my anxiety I'm seeing because I do, you know, I don't in some. You worry for them. Yeah, I, I think there are, you know, there are challenges ahead for a generation for whom those things are out of reach in particular in a society that continues to believe that that kind of progress is the one that everyone should aspire to. And in the kind of society in which, you know, if, if you're not a homeowner, for example, you know, you're in such a fragile position in terms of basic securities that, that you're in danger of becoming a sort of second or third class citizen. And I, you know, I find that, I find I find that a pretty scary prospect, and I do think some of that fear, um, you know, speaking to my own kids, some of that anxiety is is definitely there. Um, but but it's also it's and it's creating, you know, that anxiety in the face of the the inability to assuage it is creating rebellion. It's creating hmm. different visions of how, how they want to live. It's creating a different social world. And it is, it does definitely has different and somehow richer characteristics than maybe, you know, a generation or so ago. So you're optimistic that as a generation, their future is, is relatively bright. I think it's incredibly challenging. I, I, um, my optimism, I suppose, you know, is a kind of optimism of the will and the sense that, you know, there's, there's a, a vision of the, of society and of social progress that is that is richer than the one that has constrained previous generations. So although there the, are these huge challenges, there's kind of like there's more to play for. 
because we're freer of old prejudices and old senses, which were in fact just false gods. Um, and, mm. and, and, and the generation that's coming, I think, you know, is able to see through that a little bit more. It has all these pitfalls around it, you know, the internet, the housing market, the pressure of, of um, university fees and the insecurity of the job market. But it has perhaps a, a, a more ability to have a creative vision of the world than than previous generations have had, and one that one that actually has the possibility to take some of this vision about what the good life could be and put it into practice. Yeah, it brings us on to to to, to narrative, I guess, and, and framing of prosperity and you know flourishing society and you know how we measure progress. Can we just maybe touch on you know, your your fascination with narrative and storytelling and and how that's played into your work? Yeah, uh, I always wanted to tell stories, and I don't. I have no idea where that came from. That was almost like you know before. I think I do actually. I think it was a kind of reaction to some of these what I was describing before as really formative experiences, but really quite challenging ones around of death and illness and bereavement and so on and and actually you know wanting to be able to make sense of those I think that one of the primitive primary instincts that we have is to make sense of the world and and a narrative is, is a way of of trying to make sense it's a, and we we do seem to have as a species we seem to have a kind of an instinctive understanding of narrative and it's one that draws people in I didn't actually, when I started writing and writing plays, I, I was not very good at, at this understanding of the power of narrative. I knew, uh, at, again, at some instinctual level, I knew what I wanted to try and do. I wanted to console, I wanted to challenge, I wanted to make sense, I wanted to tell a story in a way that you would come out at the other end, having had a kind of transformation, whether it's a sort of emotional release or whether it's a moment of understanding or whether it's a connection and empathy with characters that, that, that I was trying to create this point of sort of taking people on a journey where they would, you know, reach the top of the hill and see the view, if you like. And, and, um, and I didn't know, like I didn't know economics, I didn't know the technicalities of that because nobody had taught me and I had, you know, not really liked what I'd seen as the kind of approach to the coursework. And then a little bit later on, I read uh, Robert McKee story, uh, where, which was which actually emerged quite late in sort of the science of telling stories, if you like, where, where he sort of dissected what makes a good narrative and how it's put together and how it goes from A to B and how it draws you in to the arc of the story and the journey of the quest, as he puts it, of the protagonist. And, and actually, you know, you know be, being able to then understand what that dynamics is of how story works and how narrative works, I was not, not, not just able to become you know, a better uh, playwright, but I was also able to import some of that interestingly into what I was doing. It was one of the things that I was describing very early on about my sense of reading Prosperity Without Growth again. I'd written it as a scientific report to a government department. And, and I, mm -hmm. when I wrote it again, I wanted it to have more narrative structure. I wanted it to be more of a quest. And, and that's, you know, that's really interesting that there are 
you know, there is a big scientific discussion about this, but there's there's a, there's a sense in which this narrative is something that connects human beings. It's the ways that we identify commonly with common challenges and common issues. It's a way that we activate our emotional response to something rather than simply a rational one. Mm. And and it's it's very powerful in those terms. And it's 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 also transcendental. It's a way of rising above ourselves and rising above the debate that we're having uh, and the arguments we're having and the disagreements we're having and the and the uh, you know the this sense of micro importance of our individual life because when you're engaged in narrative you break those links you know it's fantastic i love the process of writing because i am no longer tim jackson i am i am a voice for these characters who I don't even know where they come from, who are playing out a reality that's bigger than I will ever be, even though it's just a story. Um, and that's that's the power of narrative and the, the ability to kind of rise above and see patterns and see in perspective and to transform through emotional engagement to, to the point where we just momentarily maybe but but in a way that we can't achieve through 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 science or through rational thought momentarily we we kind of get a glimpse of a, of something bigger bigger than ourselves and bigger than the temporary time that we are allocated on a finite planet and it seems to me that that it's it's a it's a skill set or a talent that is in massively short supply in a world that's you know, largely dominated by left brain thinkers, you know, rely on rationality, logic. Uh, you know, you have to look at this, you know, the overwhelming scientific evidence for, you know, climate yeah. change and, and, you know, yeah. and, and so on. And yet fail to win the argument, perhaps because the narrative around it hasn't been compelling enough or emo- emotional yeah. enough. And there's a rejection of that from left brainers. So there's part of me wonders to what extent you and your work as an economist, the, the right brain, left brain balance in your head, you know, has been absolutely instrumental in, in informing the kind of economist you are. What One feeds into the other. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I I experienced physically that left brain, right brain split. I, I can feel when 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 I'm locked in those right brain left brain situations, um, and the right brain is not having enough sustenance, is not engaging enough. I, ha- I have this kind of sense of sort of dryness and heat and discomfort and itchiness, and and I can and I remember that you know even even as a kid, just kind of reacting against that really and saying. I'm not comfortable, so I want I want the other thing, and so I sort out the places where I could find the other thing, wherever they might be. And I remember, thinking, I mean, I remember in the early days of being an academic, for example, when I was writing much more, doing much more playwriting than I am now. At one point, I had a thirty-episode series to write in the middle of doing a full-time job as an academic, and and I, I remember there was somebody interviewed me at that time and said, you know, why, why do you do this? And it really stopped me short. And I thought, why do I, you know, why would you do that? Why would you make your life so difficult by having to try and, you know, most people, when they go home from work at the end of the day, they can relax a bit. But I had this other, you know, task that I wanted to do that I was desperately wanting to do, which would mean that I couldn't relax at all. And I'd be working, you know, into the hours until two or three in the morning and then getting up and doing the same thing over again. 
and I realized actually at that point that if if I wasn't doing that I would not be able to cope with the other thing I would absolutely you know I would physically not not be able to to sustain what I was doing the two things were supporting each other they weren't fighting against each other the the, the right brain stuff the creativity it's, it's nourishing you it's not not draining you nourishing absolutely yeah it was and and that was a sort of sort of um weird kind of moment of realization that actually what i thought had been conflicting parts of my life were actually mutually supportive why do you think then in, in a sort of left brain dominated world that, that there isn't sufficient credence uh, given to uh, the use of narrative storytelling and so on to to make arguments at you know the ground level i see lots of change agents you know working in large organizations trying to make business cases for change and transformation and getting stuck this I mean, it's a very very common area where people get stuck it's a waning gap between people's need for being good at this uh, and where where they're at and yet more broadly across organizations and across society, we just don't attach enough significance and importance to it. We certainly don't do so in, in I think, in primary and secondary education. You know, we're steered, you know, either down one path or another, you know, be a left brainer or be a right brainer. But you know, it seems to me there's, there's a much greater need for more balance at an individual level. Yeah, there is a need for balance. I mean, you know, the, the Chinese had this right thousands of years ago in, in terms of their understanding of, the different elements in in the world and the way they relate to each other and and the and the way that if you imbalance one of those elements then the whole system is actually ill at that point and so it's an interesting kind of reflection on whether we are ill as a society because we 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 are dominated by left brain decision making processes we think we are i mean that's the other thing that's interesting you know the science damasio uh, and uh, and the work around uh, the emotions that he did and has done, you know, tells us actually that emotion precedes cognition. We think we are cognitive, rational, left brain people in a in, you know regulated world, but actually we're still driven by these emotional responses before we get to cognition, which is which was the fascinating insight that that Damasio. So we've, we've become very good at post event rationalization. <laughs> yeah, we've become very good at it because. I mean, I think here it, it is a tricky question, and I don't entirely know the answer. There's a wonderful book called The Emissary, The, the Master and His Emissary, which is about this left brain, right brain split. And, and, the, and, the, and the argument basically is that the master is the right brain, surprisingly, and the emissary is the person who goes out and enacts the wishes of the master in the world and, and has to have these slightly rational engineering technological-based skills because those are the tasks, some of the tasks that the master um, is trying to enact in the world. And, and the argument in the book, which is a, you know, quite seductive one in a way, is that the emissary has just gone off into the world doing its thing, forgetting, in fact, that, you know that our will and our intuition and our, our our social vision are sitting back home in the right brain and and not being enacted at all. So the emissary's gone off and flipped the finger at the master and said, "No, sorry, mate, I'm doing my own thing. This is my technological utopia, and I'm going to run riot in it. And um, whatever you want doesn't matter." And that's got to be, if it's at all an accurate description of our society, it's got to be a you know, very cultural thing that's happened over centuries, which is why it's difficult for us in this world to simply 
turn our backs on it. We, we get wonderful creative people who are able to follow their creative passion, but they're still doing it in a world that's kind of regimented by these very rationalistic left brain structures that in purely neurophysiological terms are simply illusions because we're still emotional poetic creative beings but we're being kind of you know we're doing it in a system that's constrained its creativity somehow in in weird ways do you think there's a, an awakening of sort of cognitive dissonance uh, uh, amongst people around this and that's driving their interest in yeah definitely you know, alternative paradigms different ways of being yeah you can see that you know that's one of the things like what we were talking about before with the, with the kids you know you can see that in the very very clearly actually as a kind of awakening and you kind of think you know it's no longer possible mm. to have an education system which says toe the line you know because we're not born into the world as, as left brain rational people following commands we're born into the world to question it and if you question a system if you question the world around you when it's deeply dysfunctional it's not possible for you to ignore that dysfunctionality and and i think that that is a part of what's happening in the generation of kids who actually see their ability to, to be social agents in the world as a much more important thing mm. sometimes than their own material security even we did this study for the un it was nearly 10 years ago now um, on global a global survey of sustainable lifestyles and we we ask asking young people you know what are your hopes and fears? And 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 yes, there were fears about income and material security. But what the most surprising thing that came out of the study was actually, you know, take all that away if you like, but please don't take away my social agency. Don't take away my ability to be a creative participant in the world and to make it a better place. And that, you know, that I think is is very primary. It drives us as human beings and and this generation actually you can see that in a in a very clear way that in in, a, in an uncertain world in which their own material security isn't isn't even to be taken for given that this ability to be creative and to act for the social good in it remains or emerges as one of the the key things that they have that kind of brings me on on to ai people have said you know the the safe spaces the reserves left for humanity once we pass singularity, once it sort of tears away from us, will be the creative. The danger for me in it rests in in losing humanity as a as a as a concept. Almost, you know, we're not purely instrumental beings. We're not just task performers. You know, we're not even just trying to kind of reproduce and reproduce and and continue although at the genetic level we're continually told that that is our purpose the bits of what sort of you know matter rather than just glitter are, are actually you know weird they, they don't take the character of task they don't take the character of outcome they take something like these fleeting moments of emotional connection, something like these moments of vision, something like, you know, the, the greatness of real lasting works of art that go on for generations and reflect beyond the mortality of individual lives. And it's that, you know, that sense of 
sense of other and connection to other and sense of beyond ourselves. Um, yes, creatives sometimes understand that better than than left brain people, but actually even that in itself is a danger if you think the purpose of, of the world is is just to you know create and create and create. It, it can't it can't be that what's getting lost it seems to me out of the AI debate is is humanity and and the and the you know the the inner core of what the human spirit is and and by dividing the world into the tasks that humans can do and the tasks that robots can do we're actually falling into that same trap that we fall into when we try and left brain everything um of not understanding our our place in a in a bigger richer picture of the world and if if we can't defend that territory from from robots and from capitalism and from growth and from you know this narrow vision of progress that that we've that's dominated us for for a century or more then you know that's that's a real danger it seems to me that's a real place where i don't know i mean we want to say that it might be better if it was <laughs> you know if the world was dominated by robots at that point but you would certainly say that we had lost something absolutely vital out of ourselves and out of society and out of our connection to nature and we were yeah we were really then in a in a in a dangerous a dangerous place uh, a poorer place a more arid place where um you know everything our connection to ourselves to each other to to nature to other species was about to evaporate i don't believe it is about to evaporate i mean i i, I think what i what i feel rather is that that is a perennial struggle that we are always engaged in and this generation's version of that perennial struggle is the debate about ai and robots right uh, but do, do you worry that we're sleepwalking our way towards something that can't be undone yeah i mean that that is that is, we don't seem to have at the moment a politics or a voice for an alternative to this somewhat dystopian journey that is pushed by the interests of, of a minority of people who control and will control and will, and will continue to try to control the way that this technology mm. develops and is deployed in the world. Mm. I mean, in a way, it's, it's not a story about, you know, the robots taking over. It's a story about a minority taking over and taking control and taking power it is an old story about the human instinct and this human um, lust for power over other people and its counterpoint has always been and will continue to be i think this this more kind of spirit-based uh sense of our commonality and our temporary nature in in time and space and, and transcending that in whatever way we can so but it, it, there are times when that's going to be a struggle there's no doubt about that there's times historically when it's been you know about conflict and struggle rather than about a nice fluffy vision of a of, of hope into the future and and that's another of the reasons actually interestingly why narrative is interesting because what we tend to do in the sustainability debate is to kind of flatten that that landscape of of conflict but actually drama, what drama tells you, what narrative tells you, that that's the essence of the story. That's where story comes from. 
and we have to engage in that and the and narrative allows us to engage in that in that as a sense of 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 um of tension and conflict and the way that we engage in that as protagonists or antagonists the best narrative actually is a story you know is are those stories where you don't just see that narrative journeys the, the hero's quest the the conflicts the final battle the resolution you don't just see that in kind of hollywood terms you see it in a transcendental sense in a way that rises above who we are and the place we are at this particular point in time it's been a, a fascinating conversation I, I do thank you for your time thanks for joining us thanks tony thank you very much i'm your host tony cook and I'm on a mission to provide inspiration and insight for people changing their world. So check out changehackers.org to read show notes, guest blogs, and subscribe to access bonus content. Remember, this show's for you and change hackers like you. So drop me a line, tell me what you love, what you hate, or ideas you have for improving the show. And let me know if you know someone who'd make a great guest on this show. Maybe a friend, someone you work with, maybe even you. Just use the contact form at changehackers.org. I'd love to hear from you. Till next time, change hackers.